Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in banter and dear friend, Mr. Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Welcome, Dan. What up, Leslie? I'm glad you survived Comic-Con. I did. It was super fun. I actually might like it again. Oh, God, that is so... I feel so sad for you that you somehow got suckered back into believing that. It's just going to raise your expectations for the next time it dashes your hopes and dreams. Listen, I don't have to work the panels. We have a team of incredible writers and freelancers who who do that. So I can really go down there to enjoy and gossip at the parties and check stuff out and kind of, you know, embrace my nerd and... You know, and by that I mean embrace my wife and her nerd. <laughs> <laughs> that that went from confusing to vaguely kinky to confusing again. Well yeah. done. Well, <laughs> by embrace I mean support. Anyway, let's move on. Um, Aw, and then it went to emotionally satisfying. Aw. <laughs> this week we're coming to you from the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, California, where we have just kicked off the Television Critics Association's summer press tour. The TCA, not the Teen Choice Awards, is a semi-annual event where networks and, well, some streamers come through to present new and returning fare with the hopes of cutting through and, you know, to see maybe some execs take the stage and try to avoid and dodge bullets coming at them in rapid succession, Dan. Man, see, we're going to be talking about TCA stuff, about executives and networks, and all anyone wants from TCA stuff is coverage of the Jonas Brothers. People want that? Yeah, people love the Jonas Brothers. They're cool again. Okay, I'll I'll take your word for it because, you know, I'm not down with what the kids are doing these days. (laughs) I believe we cover that almost every podcast. Yeah, well, before we get into this week's top five, let's get into this week's headlines. The Dude, Jeff Bridges, will make his TV series regular debut in an FX drama called The Old Man. Game of Thrones creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss continued to shop for a rich new overall deal, with the field now narrowing to Amazon, Netflix, and Disney for what I'm hearing could be a deal valued at $200 million. Jesus, does that include at least a million dollars to get someone to rewrite the last season of Game of Thrones? No, it does not. Excellent. Yeah. Janelle Monet has replaced Julia Roberts as the season two star of Amazon's Homecoming. Carlton Cuse is developing a new take on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for Hulu. And that is his first project on her as big ABC Studios overall deal. Lifetime is turning the college admission scandal into a TV movie. The female-focused cable network is also put into development a sequel to its Emmy-nominated docuseries Surviving R. Kelly and is also working on a follow-up docuseries called Surviving Jeffrey Epstein. And closing out headlines, this just in, Will and Grace will end with its previously announced third season of the revival, its 11th overall on NBC. It's the end of an era, Dan, again. (laughs) Seriously, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I I don't know. What are we going to say? I grieved Will and Grace for so many years. They put themselves back in my heart and now I have to grieve them again. The lesson here, Leslie, is never fall in love. Dan, I'm so sorry. Please fall in love sometime and do and do that soon. I worry about you. Hi, Mom and Dad. Anyway. <laughs> Excellent. Well, with all that out of the way, let's get into this week's top five. Number one. Our number one segment this week is about a place I was not. We're going to be talking about San Diego Comic-Con. Oh, yeah. So, once again, as happens every year, 
nerds and nerd adjacent people. It's not really just for nerds anymore. And I'm including me as a frequent Comic-Con attendee before I got out of it. Descended on the San Diego Convention Center for four plus days of mirth, mayhem, and standing in long lines to get into ballrooms. And our Leslie Goldberg was there. First off, Leslie, how did the Brooklyn Nine-Nine panel go? It was a blast. That cast is so fun. There is now a social media campaign to get Bruce Willis to join, to guest star on the show with the hashtag BeWillie99. So, you know, if that's the best thing that comes out of it, I'm not going to complain. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> they are fans of uh, Die Hard on that show, and I can imagine that would be an amusing thing. And seriously, what else is Bruce Willis doing. So, okay, uh, let's see. We had a lot of conversation previously about what might happen when the aforementioned Benioff and Weiss sat down with the Comic-Con faithful and whether there was going to be acrimony or tension, but... Uh-oh. They didn't make it. Two days before Comic-Con, they bailed. Sources say that they were planning to already skip Comic-Con before the Emmy nominations were announced, but waited to make the announcement that they would not be coming until two days before Comic-Con started and after the show collected a leading and record-breaking, I should say, 32 Emmy nominations. Still, the panel was pretty eventful. You know, a lot of the cast members who were on hand did address some of the final season stuff. They talked a little bit about the controversy. Also, by the way, did you know that, that there were members of the Game of Thrones fandom who were threatening to disrupt the panel if Benioff and Weiss were there? I, I learned that while I was at Comic-Con. That is, I mean, that, that goes against everything that Comic-Con represents. It's an event that's designed for fans to celebrate these shows and these movies and video games and everything else. And threatening to, to disrupt a panel, that's just not cool. I mean, it's art. This is art, lest everyone forget. Well, it's more for me the this is a subjective thing. This is people who maybe didn't like a final season of a show. It isn't like, I don't know, they committed a crime or character X did something horrible that violated our general sense of decency. No, this is people who wanted a better ending than they got, given that they were going to probably be disappointed regardless, and they're going to be assholes for that. That seems really uncalled for. <laughs> yeah. Also really uncalled for was one of the cast members blaming the media for the divisive final season, that this was a media-led campaign as if, you know, we're, the entertainment press is some fake news outlet, too. I'm not going to mention that actor's name because I don't want to promote him because that's just, well, shitty. So, hey, we will totally talk about him again someday when he's the fifth or sixth lead on an acorn crime procedural. I'm, I'm sure that we will definitely have a lot to say for and about him in his successful future endeavors. Yes. Let me get those press requests rolling right now. <laughs> I believe we just guaranteed one person who will not be a future guest on the TV's top five podcast. <laughs> So what else was big and exciting? Uh, there was a big old Veronica Mars panel, and that was timed to a big old surprise. Yeah. Surprise, everyone gathered at, at Comic-Con. All you thousands of people who come out, all you fellow marshmallows or whatever that fandom is called, the entire season of the Hulu reboot is, surprise, available a week early. Except, oh wait, you're trapped at Comic-Con and can't watch any of it. And it ends with a massive, massive spoiler. Huge spoiler that we won't talk about here for fear that you haven't seen it yet. Because, well, that came out four days ago or five days ago at this point, And not everyone's had time. Because most people were at Comic-Con. 
Yeah, that that was a strange decision, and that's not even getting into all the inconvenience that it caused for, say, for example, entertainment website editors who had to realign or reschedule their content, or for critics or who... Or writers who haven't finished writing or transcribing those interviews. I mean... Exactly. I mean, I, my review of Veronica Mars came out time to the embargo, which was five days before Comic-Con, but... There are plenty of people who don't chase embargoes with their review and who figured they had a solid three, four, five, six days in which to actually write a meaningful review of the series. Nope. It's all live. And if you're a fan and you were planning on binging the entire series that came before the Hulu revival, no time to do any of that stuff. So, I mean, look, from one standpoint, it's fan service. You're announcing to a ballroom that this thing that you love so much is available now and not a week from now. But also, you know, they're also spent thousands of dollars to be a Comic-Con. And, you know, they run the risk of being spoiled on social media, which we all know is really hard to stay off of, even if you're, you're trying to avoid a spoiler. But, you know, so it, it wound up being a double edged sword for them. So good on them, but not really. Thousands of dollars to be a Comic Con, millions of dollars on advertising with a specific premiere date that we haven't even technically reached. So it's a little, little odd. I don't think it's necessarily awful. It had no impact whatsoever on my life, but I can imagine that it caused a fair amount of frustration and annoyance, but also at least some joy. And so I guess someone at Hulu did the math and decided the joy to annoyance ratio was in the right direction. So what exciting renewals or cancellations were announced at Comic-Con? I don't know if you want to file this under exciting, but Fear the Walking Dead is returning for a sixth season. And that honestly, you know, The Walking Dead had a big two hour block with both the flagship and the spinoff going back to back for a big block at, in San Diego. But, you know, to me, the bigger takeaway for all things Walking Dead is, you know, they had their kind of Marvel like panel where it was just announcement, announcement, announcement. And they worked really hard to prove that this franchise, despite the comic book surprise ending last month, that the franchise is alive and well and not going anywhere anytime soon. They announced the Fear of the Walking Dead renewal. Denai Guerrera confirmed by February exclusive report that she was indeed leaving the flagship in season 10. Chief Content Officer Scott Gimple laid out a bunch of details about the upcoming third show, which is centered around the, the first generation to come of age in this post-apocalyptic world. And they basically reiterated that, yeah, season 10, a lot of people think there's some speculation going on that season 10 could be the end of the flagship. No way. He sees that show running for many more seasons to come. And also they announced that the standalone Andrew Lincoln TV movies, not so much with the TV part. Lest I forget, the biggest part of their announcement was a surprise like 15 second teaser trailer at the end of the of of their two hour block, which showed that big helicopter that Andrew Lincoln's Rick Grimes was last seen on in the AMC series flying off into the distance. And now, hey, those three TV movies that were originally designed for AMC. Yeah, those aren't going to air on AMC. They will air exclusively or be released, I should say, exclusively in theaters through a deal with Universal Pictures. That's the film arm of Universal where Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman has a film deal. Sources say that that deal has been in the works since before Charlie Collier left AMC. And, you know, look, AMC had been open and vocal about looking for a, a partner on those movies because, look, it's a big financial endeavor. So and we know AMC is notoriously cheap. That's been well documented. So this is, you know, and it makes sense. AMC will co-produce all three movies with Universal and Skybound, the company owned by Robert Kirkman. I don't know what the price point is at which I would 
pay money for this. I, I really don't. But it's it's less than five dollars. I mean, <laughs> look, I love Andrew Lincoln and I thought what he did with Rick Grimes was incredible. He's been very kind to me for the past decade covering the show. But I don't know that he's a big enough draw to bring in viewers who may have quit this show to pay money to see him again. What it really needs is a movie star. And look, Denai Guerrero is leaving the show. She does not currently have a deal for these Andrew Lincoln movies. I would be shocked if she wasn't in at least one of them. But I mean, I don't know that that it makes sense for her to be in the first one. If this is kind of chartering Rick's journey, or I don't know if they're planning on killing him off in these movies the way they did in the comics. Spoiler alert on the comic that's been out for two months. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, the, the big question is if this franchise is strong enough to withstand a theatrical release. It's just, will I get off of my couch to pay $10 for this? Not a chance. So, okay, you established that. Will I click on a VOD button and pay $6.99 for this? You know, I guess Maybe. you have to try that secondly. Yeah. Maybe. But, yeah, it's... But, again, while I think it's a dumb idea, it is, it is a swing, and either it works or it doesn't. Yeah. One of the other renewals I want to mention is DC Universe's Doom Patrol was renewed for a second season. And what's interesting about that is it will air simultaneously on both DC Universe and HBO Max. So we're starting to see some clarity with how those two Warner Brothers backed platforms will coexist. So lots of questions remain about the, you know some of the other DC Universe originals. But this is a big step and a good one and a smart one, I think. What else you got? What other big announcements? The biggest stuff thing that anyone on my Twitter feed was talking about was that gigantic Marvel panel, which was not just movie stuff. It was also TV stuff. It was, my goodness, Marvel is taking over the world. Yes. It, the Marvel presentation on Saturday night in Hall H was basically just one announcement on the film site after another. Boom, boom, boom. Rapid fire succession. All major breaking news alerts. And one of the things that was included in that was a lot of information about premiere dates and key art for some of the Marvel TV series that are slated to air on Disney+. Plus. The one thing that wasn't included in the big Marvel film block was Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which ABC confirmed will end next season as Marvel continues to kind of reintegrate the TV stuff with the film side. So this is, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was Marvel's first ever primetime live action scripted show when it debuted on ABC a few years ago. It's kind of been Marvel's redheaded stepchild. And it, the final season was announced before the panel and the panel was held on a Thursday. So Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has been a huge like stepping stone for Marvel on television, but yet they were banished to some outside panel. So they couldn't even get a curtain call during the MCU panel on Saturday night at Comic-Con. But I can't imagine that that would have excited the crowd. The no, audience at this point but, is so but you, small. No, but you pay homage to the people that came before you. And that would have been a really, really cool way to kind of segue of, look, we did this show. We didn't connect it to the MCU the way we should have. And now we're rep we're, we're fixing that with all these Disney Plus shows with all these movie stars in them. <laughs> Everybody give it up for our mistake. Woo! Agents of shit. No, I mean, look, no one's going to like Jeff Loeb's not going to come out on stage and say any of that stuff. But like it still would have been a cool moment to at least acknowledge that, hey, this other show exists and it's ending. I mean, but what do I know? I'm just, you know, I, I lead with my heart. So this just kind of felt kind of screwy. You know? I've also been assured that the past couple seasons of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. have gotten really solid. I don't know if that's true. I watched four seasons of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which seemed like really and truly plenty of time to give a show to become a show I wanted it to be. Yeah, it just, I don't know, that that's what I would have done. But I, I also, you know, try to be res more respectful of these guys than I think, you know, I don't know. <laughs> 
And for more highlights from Comic-Con, be sure to check out Josh Wiggler's series regular podcast over on THR. He is joined this week by Aaron Couch and Patrick Shanley to talk all about Marvel's Phase 4 and how the TV side of it fits in. Number two. Batting second this week, we're a few days into the Television Critics Association Summer Press Tour. Lifetime, Nat Geo, TNT, TBS, HBO, AMC, and Discovery have all come through. Hulu, Stars, Amazon, those outlets will be joining the broadcast networks in the coming days. Dan, from what you've seen so far, what are some of your highlights now? Oh, uh, well, there were on the first day, there were two different panels with dogs. <laughs> <laughs> No, the the first day highlights were definitely dog related. Uh, There were multiple dog based panels where basically critics spent 30 minutes staring at dogs and going, oh, look, it's staring at us. Oh, look, it's scratching behind its ears. It thinks it's people. And and I don't unfortunately necessarily remember what shows those dogs were affiliated with. I think peak TV at its finest, peak puppy TV. I think one of them was Dog Impossible or something on Nat Geo. I I think that was the thing that exists. So I'm uh, just going to plug peak dog TV, peak puppy TV again, because I think it's funny. Pekingese TV. There you go. Except that none of the dogs were Pekingese. So whatever. But our listeners don't know that. They can imagine whatever they want. Anyway, the big highlights, obviously, HBO always tends to bring out a lot of both talent and excitement. And while there was nothing this time on quite the level of having a panel with Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Laura Dern and Meryl Streep all sitting right next to each other, which was pretty impressively star-studded, we did get to ask HBO's Casey Bloyas about what exactly happened with that TV show featuring those four big actresses. And I don't think things really got acrimonious. I think they could have. I think basically the entire panel was Casey Bloyas saying that things didn't worry him that we thought might worry him. So was he worried that people didn't like the final season or some people didn't like the final season of Game of Thrones? No, not not particularly. Uh, was he worried about all of the negative reporting about the situation involving Andrea Arnold and Jean-Marc Vallée and the whole Big Little Lies situation? Not much, but he had to answer that in at least four different ways. Yeah, he was repeatedly grilled over both topics. You know, he stood by the final season of Game of Thrones, and I think it's a pretty easy thing to do when <laughs> it garners a record 32 Emmy nominations and helps HBO set a new single-year record for total Emmy nominations in a single year. You know, in terms of Big Little Lies, he said there was some misinformation about Andrea Arnold's time behind the camera in season two. As my sources told us when the story first broke, she didn't have Final Cut. Bloys reiterated as much, and she knew that they weren't looking to reinvent the show. I'm not sure what really happened or where the original story about this, you know, reporting all these details came from, but, you know, it just, it sounds like she maybe wasn't happy with what the final cut was, and that's where we are now, so... And the fact that Andrea Arnold has not been put out there or has not chosen to go out there in any publicity capacity, I think is playing a major role in all of this. The IndieWire story that reported all of this referred to unnamed sources close to Andrea Arnold who referred to her as heartbroken. And she may be. There are many different reasons why one could be heartbroken. And we simply don't know the logistics of what 
her understanding was of the situation she was in, how that differs from the actual contractual understanding that HBO and All and Sundry had. I asked Casey Bloys about the fact that there were between nine and 11 credited editors on every episode this season, and he kind of broke down the time frame and why that was and what it had to do with the fact that Jean-Marc Vallée is himself an editor. He was the only credited editor, I believe, on Sharp Objects, and... So he basically has his team. And so the team went through it. And so that ends up bringing the numbers up high. And that appeared not to phase him particularly. I personally, given that that is completely unprecedented in my TV viewing experience, nine editors on an episode of episodic TV is not something you see credited. It's yeah, simply I mean, weird. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot of hands in that cookie jar when you've got your two leading stars who are also exec producing through their very established production companies. You've got David E. Kelly and you've got Jean-Marc Vallée. I mean, those are a lot of big names and, and with them come their teams. And while film Twitter is very much up in arms about Andrea Arnold and her auteur status and all of that, and while it's unquestionably true that she is a very distinctive and often tremendous director, I think that within the context of the power struggles that could have existed with all of these names on this show, she was never going to be the only voice. There was no chance that this woman with no top-tier American prestige TV credits to her name. And, you know, yes, she's done episodic TV and on very good shows, but not anything on this scale. Let, that, just let's be yeah. real. But in, And it also, like, look, it's a limited series. It's not an anthology, which means it's got to have the same look. It means they chose to have it have the same look. And once that was the case, you know, I, I just don't know. I, I think obviously there were complications on this season. There's no question there were things going in many different directions and it ended up strangely and I would say it pretty clearly ended up impacting the quality of the season. But I don't think it's as simple as uh, female auteur got squeezed out of the editing room and lost creative control. I, I think it is a lot of different factors in which that is a piece of the equation but we don't know exactly what piece. So yeah. it's complicated, really. And I, I think that's clearly true. And I think not having her voice in the conversation is a part of why we're so perplexed by this. Maybe someday she will do an interview where she levels on the whole thing. And when I say maybe, I mean, it's really going to happen eventually. So we'll see when that happens. Yeah, it would be definitely interesting if she came out and spoke openly and honestly about her experience. But at the same time, like, if she says anything negative, you know, she's kind of in, in this like damned if she does and damned if she doesn't space where if she does say something that could be considered incendiary, she runs the risk of pissing off Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, David E. Kelly and Jean-Marc Vallée. That's a big lineup of people that maybe you shouldn't do that. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's a tough position either way. And, you know, I, I'll take your word for the impact that that the behind the scenes insanity had on the show. So. Well, but I, again, I, it, that's the thing. I don't know. I, you know, the problem could be as simple as David E. Kelly didn't have a good story for the season and there was just no way of translating what they did in interesting form. And that could just be a simply a one person problem where they did not have a full season of story. That, so maybe it's not complicated. Maybe it's exactly that simple. I, who knows? Well, for now, nobody does. So let's move on to uh, one of the other highlights from HBO's day. Dan, Damon Lindelof met the press to preview his take on Alan Moore's beloved comic Watchmen. Dan, I mean, we've both got to see the pilot before this was uh, removed by HBO from the press site. <laughs> We're not allowed to say much of 
anything at all. But what were your big takeaways from what we are allowed to talk about? And it should be emphasized that the reason why it's been taken down from the press site is because it doesn't premiere until October. And it is perfectly reasonable for them to not want us giving reactions on a show that is still X number of months out. It was still plenty to give critics lots of things to converse with with Damon Lindelof. I think it, there is a very interesting racial allegory that is part of the underpinnings of the story. And I think there were some, I don't want to say contention or controversy about it, but there was some heated conversation between Damon Lindelof and at least one critic where the ultimate bottom line was it's part of the nine episode arc of the season. I can't tell you exactly what the point is you're going to have to watch some of it. And that's the kind of thing that can leave us a little bit stymied in the room because we're like, we want to have a conversation about this. We don't have enough information. You have more information than we do. So we just have to take your word for it. But that's not what reporters are supposed to do. It's not our job to take someone's word. But it was still an interesting conversation. And I thought that Damon Lindelof did a, a very good job of explaining a lot of the things that he's going for here and a lot of how it takes this very seminal comic from the 80s and continues the story and finds new resonances in this era of social media, of online bullying, of rise again of white supremacy, of distrust of police, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of very current and interesting things that are happening in this. And I don't think, again, that's spoiling anything from the episode we've seen. Yeah. I mean, Dan, you've read the comic, yes? I have indeed. From that perspective, do you think that the show will kind of be something that's embraced by fans of the comic, considering Alan Moore has said he wants nothing to do with it? And do you think this series will be something that's accessible to people who aren't familiar with the world of Watchmen? A little yes, a little no. And I think my impression without saying much more is that I, I feel like the series is very clearly very ambitious. And I think that as Damon Lindelof learned on both Lost, but really to me more on Leftovers, was you can go very ambitious, you can go very thoughtful, you can add a lot of layers and nuance, but you're probably under those circumstances going to cut off some of your mainstream audience. And that was the thing about Leftovers is that there was a version of that show that was a big hit. It was just not the version that Damon Lindelof had any desire to make. And so it was always this show where some people came into it initially going, man, I want to find out about the mechanics of the disappearance. I want to know about the sci-fi fantasy side of this. I want answers. And that was never the show that Damon Lindelof wanted to make. And in the same way, there are going to be people who come into this who want certain things from this who are going to be frustrated and disappointed because the stuff that Damon Lindelof is doing here is bigger, whether it's you know, I don't want to say it's better because Watchmen is a classic. I think he is not going for the widest possible audience here. And I don't in any way mean that as an insult. Yeah. Well, we've got much more coverage coming from TCA over the next what feels like eternity. Be sure to bookmark THR.com. We'll have all the latest breaking news and highlights. And of course, Dan and I will be here on top five to kind of weigh in on what pops and what doesn't. That takes us to our third topic this week. Number three. Up third, we have some very, very sad news to report, Dan. It's very sad. I'm very sad. My favorite show, my favorite show, Dan, is ending. Designated Survivor has been canceled 
again. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. This time, a first at Netflix. Canceled for the first time at Netflix after being canceled a year ago by ABC. Dan, it's the end of an era. What are we going to do? Oh, God. Well, we're definitely going to have to find another show that has had as many uh, showrunners vis-a-vis the number of seasons as this show. I, oh, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> OK, I'm, I mean, you, you can't see me, but uh, Leslie is raising her hand and I am calling on her. The last OG at TBS just announced this week that Keenan Ivory Wayans, which is an amazing hire, is going to come in as showrunner for season three. He is the Tracy Morgan and Tiffany Haddish comedies third showrunner in as many seasons. So there you go. But it's staying on. Oh, and it's got two networks, too. It originally was developed for FX. So it went from FX to TBS. So two networks. Three seasons, three showrunners. We're starting a new one. Leslie just went from so sad to so happy. She thought, will there ever be another designated survivor? And then, thinking on her feet, she realized there already is. The true designated survivor was love. Don't you even try and play that game with me? Well, Designated Survivor wasn't the only Netflix series to get the axe this week. The streamer also canceled comedy Tuca and Birdie after one season, which is surprising because look at the stars of that show. It's Ali Wong and Tiffany Haddish. It has a 100% critical rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Dan, this one seems crazy to me. Yeah, I, I don't understand this at all. There There is no way I am able to process what the choice is that Netflix thinks that they're making. And a part of that is, and you might have heard us mention this at some point on this podcast, we don't know ratings for Netflix. And thus, we're making arguments standing in a dark corner like we're on the Blair Witch Project. And that's a really dumb way to have to make an argument. So from my perspective, you have a show that has completely universal acclaim. So there's there's no question there. This is as universal as a first season shows acclaim can get. You have a show that is from Lisa Hanawalt, who has worked on BoJack Horseman. It's executive produced by Raphael Bob Waxberg, who is the creator of BoJack Horseman, which is one of Netflix's most, I don't want to say important, because I don't really know... <laughs> Again, I don't know how important anyone At thinks it is. At least critically. Absolutely. Just, you know, it's a pivotal key show for Netflix. So it features Ali Wong, who has been very big for Netflix in many different forms, from TV movies to comedy specials. Features Tiffany Haddish, star of uh, The OG, which features three showrunners in three seasons. A great vocal cast. Just, I don't understand how you don't give this show multiple seasons to find an audience. That's what your network is supposed to exist for. And I'm not saying you have to give the show 50 seasons to find an audience, but I don't see how a show this good and this universally well-regarded can possibly be a show that you don't want to give a chance to find an audience over multiple seasons. It's baffling to me. And then it's baffling to me the number of people on Twitter who have been talking today about the fact they'd never even heard of Two Gun Birdie. And I don't know what to say about that. I wrote a rave review. We've talked about it on the podcast a couple times. It's a show that I truly love. And so... People will eventually discover this show and they will not understand how it is a show that only had one season. And it's not even like it's an obscure show. I understand why Lady Dynamite lasted only two seasons. That was a weird show. And I understand maybe it wasn't going to find an audience. But this is one where you want to leave it up on the service. You want to give it two or three seasons 
definitely two, just so that at a certain point it auto plays at the end of Bojack so that people go, if you liked, oh, hey, look, it's another show that looks exactly like it. And some people are going to be disappointed because it's not Bojack. But they did not give this show enough of a chance uh, at all. It's flummoxing to me. <laughs> yeah, it's also confusing. Look, I mean, look, they didn't own the show. And we've talked at length about what a big value it is to when you own the show. It means you don't have to pay a licensing fee to another company. And Netflix has been making a really, really big animated push. I mean, a lot of other outlets have been CBS, TV studios, open an animation studio. Netflix now has its own in-house animation studio as they kind of look to follow the Rick and Morty mold, where you bring the creator and the actual physical animators under the same roof. That helps really inspire the creative process and it helps create, I mean, look what it, what it did with Rick and Morty. I mean, that's kind of become the new model for success in, in terms of creativity for animation. And... You know, it just it doesn't make any sense to me. And I do this for a living and I got nothing. It just it gives the impression that animation is a, a space for bros. And the great thing about Tuca and Birdie is how it gave the correct impression that it doesn't need to be the case, that that was a show that was from a female creator. Many of its directors were women. The main characters were women. It was about a female friendship. I it mean, with the, with that kind of pedigree and with that kind of pop out breaking star talent attached and Ali Wong and Tiffany Haddish, I mean, you find a way to make that work. And, and you know, I mean, we should say in, in a larger sense, Netflix has continued to, to be really more aggressive in terms of its cancellations. Last week, we noted that She's Gotta Have It was canceled. The week before that, I think Chambers, the horror drama with Tony Goldwyn and, and Uma Thurman was canceled. You know, she just got to have it ran two seasons. I mean, these are not shows that I think, you know, when they look at it, I think from everything that I understand, Netflix weighs if that their money is basically best spent making another season of a returning show or using those funds to go out and buy something that will bring in new subscribers. So that's really, you know, as, you know, for so many years we've talked about ratings and, oh, the ratings were bad. That means it, it's canceled. This is the new era that we're living in is how much is that money that they're spending going to bring in new subscribers? And if the answer is little to none, the show's canceled, regardless of if it's got 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, regardless of if it makes a big statement in the animation space, regardless of if it's got top talent attached. And that is a correct and pragmatic answer, obviously, but it's still so funny the way that Netflix has in less than, I don't know, 12 months, 18 months. Basically, if you think back and you remember how strange it was when everything sucks, a, another show with a big heart and that I know you love. I loved it so much. One of my favorites. And another show that to me felt like the kind of show where there's no way it could cost enough for it to have been an imposition to have given a show with that much heart a second season to yeah, find but an audience. Everything that I heard, because I asked a lot of questions around that. What I was told is that people started the season and then didn't finish it. And look, it's a tough start. It doesn't really find its groove until maybe, you know, a third of the way through. But by that point, people just didn't stay with it. And it ended with such heart. And I w really wanted a second season of that. So. Which I suspect is the same with Tuca and Birdie, because it's a show where I think its initial response was people basically watching it, expecting it to be Bojack and then being shocked that it was not Bojack. And unquestionably, some people simply clicked away and yeah. said, OK, I'd and, rather do anything else. Yeah. And that's something that that the creator, Lisa Hanawalt, bemoaned on Twitter. She posted a really heartfelt thread about the whole experience, thanking the cast and creators and Netflix for giving the shot. But ultimately, she was canceled by a logarithm. But the thing that I that I was starting to say when I got to the everything sucks part is it for so long, Netflix was the 
network streaming service, whatever, that didn't cancel anything, where everything just kind of seemed to keep going forever. And it was like, okay, you, it's, it's basically the right of any show on Netflix to last a few years. And suddenly now Netflix has become this network that now cancels a lot of things really abruptly and, and without explanation and without any way for us to understand why. And that's frustrating. And really, we're all just sad about Designated Survivor. I'll find you no matter where you try it. Well, let's go from that into a very exciting new topic and guest. Number four. Batting cleanup this week, we're thrilled to welcome Robin Thede to TV's Top 5. Thede is the creative force behind HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show, which is considered the first sketch comedy in TV history to be written, directed, and starring an array of black women. Thede, a critical favorite from her time hosting BET's short-lived The Rundown, is a former head writer on Comedy Central's The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, joins us this week to preview her HBO offering. Welcome, Robin. Hey! That was an excellent intro. Thank you, Leslie, so much. You forgot to mention a former excellent TCA Awards host. Yes! How could I forget? Last that was amazing. Year's. Good luck, Jesus and Marrow. <laughs> Follow those footsteps. <laughs> They're going to be so high they won't remember yeah, anyway. it's true. I mean, You're they should right. pass around with it, what what they do before Listen, that, would, that would make the night fun because it it's always at the end of your TCA run and it's like people are exhausted they're running on fumes but I will say it was a blast yes, last year and thank you for having me yeah. well let's start with the show I mean how did the whole the whole show come together I mean this was you know people keep asking me this and I keep going I'm a black lady who does sketch and I wanted to do it on TV and it sounds like a really like you know sarcastic answer but it's true this has always been my passion I've been on lots of dudes sketch shows for many years and some of them most of all of them short-lived because sketch comes and goes we know that right but I auditioned for SNL in 2013 I think and then I jumped right into late night started writing at the nightly show and becoming a correspondent on that show and then made my own show and now we're back so this is a return home for me and I've spent so many years performing with black women in Second City and Improv Olympic uh LA may may rest in peace and it was important for me to bring it to television at some point and after my late night show got canceled I was like well what's next and uh Issa Rae called me and said we got to do something together what do you have and I told her about this idea for the sketch show and she was like please bring it to HBO let's do it together and Amy Gravitt sat down with us for dinner and said let's do it and gave us six episodes straight to series, which is unheard of at HBO. There was no development process because the show was already done when I brought it to them. And, you know, to have that kind of faith from Issa and from HBO is is amazing. So I'm excited about it. Well, you mentioned that sketch can be short lived, those shows, but a lot of the longer running shows, if you were to look at kind of a, a demo that have has not been done well by yes. in this space, it's black women. That's right. SNL, it's been a, frankly close to a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> um, even in Living Color, which, you know, it was freaking family. Yeah. And they were still underserved yeah, within. Absolutely. Why absolutely. do you think that is? Well, look, I think Sketch has always been very male dominated. And it's been one of those things. Even when I was watching Living Color, I wasn't like, why aren't there more women leading sketches? I was like watching all the brothers. You know what I mean? And like when Kim would come on or Takia or, you know, a couple of the black women that were on the show, like I was happy to see them. And I always thought they were amazing. But even I back then, and I was a kid to you're just you know what you know until you know better 
And so I think sketch was always seen as a man's game. But as we know, I like to break into man's games. I mean, I did that in late night and I'm doing it again in sketch. And I think this show can really change that opinion. I think there's been some, there's been a couple of all women sketch shows before, but never all black women. So I think we have a unique opportunity to show the world how funny we can be and that we're not one dimensional in comedy. You know, we're not all one type of comedian. We're not all the like eye rolling, finger snapping, you know, and type of comedian. And not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that we can do much more. And this show, I think, will show people, you know, between the core cast, uh, me and the other three women on the show, Gabrielle Dennis, Quinta Brunson, and Ashley Nicole Black, we play over 100 original characters in six episodes. That's crazy. So, you know, I think people will walk away going, wow, I didn't, I didn't know they could do that, you know? And it also introduces the world to a new set of Black female comedians, which is fun. And a whole slew of guest stars that we were lucky to get, so... Well, tell us quickly about your SNL audition. I want to know how that... Oh, my God. So I did a Soledad O'Brien impression. I did Michelle Obama. I did um, Beyonce, maybe. And my impressions were okay, but my original characters were better. And I don't... God, I'm forgetting what they were. I have, like, a couple hundred that I do, but I can't remember which ones I did back then. But the great thing was Lauren was in the audience and he, it was like one of these weird years where they flew out to LA and did 14 people live in front of an audience while Lauren watched them audition, which was different than going to the stage in New York. Yeah, they usually invite a small group. That's right. So there were 14 of us and I think six of those 14 got cast that year. It was the year with like Noel Wells and all those people and they like all, they got cast a huge group of a new class and so I saw Lauren and he was looking at me dead in the face the whole time and I did great and the feedback was great but you know beyond that I didn't get it and then the next year SNL got in all that trouble about not having seeing black women weren't fun we couldn't find any funny black women and then they auditioned a bunch of black women and then Leslie Jones and so she Zameda and like all these people got on the show so you know I think it was I was a year too early uh no I think look I think Maya Rudolph had just left maybe they didn't want another light-skinned black woman on the show I don't know what it was but maybe he just didn't he said I was funny so I, I know he thought I was funny but who knows as a person who has also had to cast a sketch show there are plenty of people you would love to have on the show who you just don't have room for so it wasn't personal and I don't think it was any malice behind it but it was good because had I gotten that I never would have been able to create this show and create history so yeah it's good how things work out yeah let's talk a little little bit about some of the things the steps that took for you to get here so Larry Wilmore was a one and done at Comedy Central yeah you get your own, go to go from Comedy Central to another Viacom brand BET yeah. get your own show yeah. so you're working with the, the right people right yeah. Larry Wilmore Chris Rock produced the rundown yeah John Stewart produced Larry mm-hmm. Wilmore show exactly yeah. so what were some of the things that you took away from those experiences that helped inform what you're doing for HBO yeah I think well because I'm also the showrunner of this show and I was I ended up being the uh, my own showrunner at the rundown for the last half of the season I knew that I could run a show that I was also starring in but that's what a lot of people don't understand they think when you create a show then you just show up to set and that's not I have my hands in every aspect of this show I'm literally approving marketing promos via emails between TCA events you know like I just finished editing the show yesterday so it's I'm involved in every bit of the process and Larry as his head writer and then turned correspondent on the show he pulled back the veil and pulled back the curtain. And even on Queen Latifah's show, I was a head writer at her daytime show as well. And before that, I had only been a staff writer and guest starring on other things. And so 
I got to get double experience as a producing level head writer and as a full-time, you know, performer on a show for two shows before this one. So that was really nice. And I think I've always had mentors who trust me implicitly and trust my vision. And Chris Rock definitely trusted my vision for the rundown and really was just his only notes were, you're doing great, you know? And it wasn't because he didn't care. He would give me specific notes on things, but, but it was always to truly just encourage me. He just believed in what I was doing and what I had to offer. And Larry was absolutely the same way. But Larry gave me my f mm, first or second peek at the the real inner workings. And Jon Stewart shared a lot of inside knowledge with me about how these shows work and why some succeed and why some don't. And when Jon Stewart tells you that and Larry Wilmore, you know, Peabody, Emmy, whatever, all the award winners, like... It, you listen. What was the piece that they said, the reasoning for what, why things don't work? John Stewart told me you have to keep your foot on the neck of the beast. And the beast is the show. And it doesn't mean to oppress people. <laughs> it sounds more vile than it is. But what he means is you have to stay focused and you have to stay checked in at every moment. And I think a lot of showrunners, especially ones who are on the show, tend, well, are rare, first of all. But they tend to check out of one of those two roles and he said you know you can't do that well even john stewart didn't run his own show a showrunner's job is usually separate and it should be because you have to be a crazy person to show run and also star in the show i don't know why i keep doing this but um i think when i brought this show to hbo they were like you're really the only person who can run this show you know uh, it, it, we're not gonna put a, a white dude in charge of a black lady sketch show who doesn't understand the vision you know if we if you want to make this your creator's vision like you you have to run the show and i was like uh, i know but it's good because I literally, it's all on my back, but I want it that way. And so, and that's what Larry taught me too, is that sometimes you got to just strap the show on your back like a backpack and carry it and you can never put it down. And that's the burden of being rich and famous. Uh, <laughs> and pretty. Did I mention I'm pretty? Um, you know, it's like you have, but it is, you have to like, you have to be able to take on that responsibility and not be crushed under the weight of it. And so that's what I learned from them. And watching them at the top of their game is just, it's really unbelievable. And I was like, okay, if they can do that, I can, I can do this. Well, uh, according to Twitter, uh, apparently it's been one year since BET canceled the show. And yes, it has. How, I think today. How have, you, how have you celebrated? Yeah. I'm celebrating with my new show on HBO. And so that means it was basically a year. When you sort of look back on the past year, does that feel like a, a really fast year and you know, whoosh Super gone? Super fast, because okay. I sold two shows the week after the show. I was just waiting to sell stuff for them. I was waiting, like, either cancel it or pick it up, because I have two other shows I want to sell. And I did. Literally within two weeks, I sold a show, a pilot to ABC, an autobiographical pilot that uh, didn't go to series, and this show to HBO. So I've been, literally my last year has all but, I think I had two months where I was in the negotiating process of contracts and stuff, but then I just went to work. You know, so yeah, the last year has been a whirlwind, and I haven't really had the time to sit and lament the end of the rundown. Which I think is good, or maybe I'll deal with it in therapy. It'll come up later in some sort of traffic incident or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, or we can do that now. I mean, this is my, this was my question for you, though. But 
you know, BET, look, they're they're in the midst of a big rebuilding. They're yeah. launching their own streaming platform with Tyler yeah. Perry. They're, it's wild. You know, they, you know, Deborah Lee, who has been there for decades, is no longer around. Yeah. They have a new guy, a marketing and advertising guy named yep. Scott Mills, who's running the network. Yep. What was the reasoning they gave you for canceling the show? I mean, numbers simply can't be enough anymore. Like, it blaming is. it on low ratings can't uh, be enough. Yeah, I mean, for them it was. Oh, you have to remember that BET is, in, is still, has to make money on commercials. And that's business. And I understand that. You know, luckily I'm on a network now that doesn't need commercials to make money. So you can just have a creative vision and make a great show, you know. And and to their credit, BET let me make the show I wanted to make. They gave no other reason other than low ratings. I mean, they there was nothing cantankerous about our relationship they really loved the show they kept telling me how much they love the show so if there was another reason i don't know yeah it just it's so yeah. confusing when you have a brand that that is in dire need of the face of a network who has a show that is critically beloved i mean you had like a what what was it like a hundred percent on we rotten tomatoes do. yeah and it's produced by chris rock who is someone they desperately want to be in business with. i know it made no sense to a lot of people but i will say they were very kind about it and very seemingly upset that they had to cancel it. But um, <laughs> that did not stop them from doing it. But I thank them for it because I spoke to Connie Orlando directly and was like, thank you for letting me know. I'm going to go sell some other stuff. And she, you know, blessed it and said, go do it, you know. And otherwise it could have languished even a little longer. But I said to them, if you're going to do it, do it because I got other stuff to do, you know, and and I took a lot of my staff with me or put, put them on other shows. Half my staff is on Jesus and Mero, The other half is with me. So, you know, I knew that we could help people transition. And, you know, it's been great for everybody in the long run. But it's always confusing when things get canceled. People still tweet at me about the nightly show getting canceled, you know, on the eve of the election that ended all elections. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I like to just try to do good work, and I can't do anything if they don't bring them back. Well, speaking of sort of the night that ended all elections, it's, it's yeah. very conspicuous that the sketches on this show are not political. Yes. And obviously that's not the way you want it to go. But the thing I like about it is a lot of them are almost on a sort of Twilight Zone level where, where there's a nightmarish quality under the surface. Is that kind of the political commentary? Absolutely. And the running theme that the last four people who survived an apocalypse are black women is absolutely a political statement. Um, you know, I think the greatest thing for us is that I've spent the last five years of my life watching nothing but 24-hour news, and it is torture it's truly torture and then having to make jokes about it right which is a challenge in and of itself and so for this show i was like i am not doing that the political act will be that this show exists that will be my protest and also because we are on hbo it's not like we're turning and burning sketches and airing them in the same week or in a week or two there is still a little bit of time lapse even though this is like the fastest show ever to be made in hbo history i mean we started writing in january it's on next week which is insane yeah i think our political commentary in this show is much more subversive and we're not afraid to play with themes of yeah murder and death and apocalyptic end of the world uh no the show is very joyous though there's <laughs> lots of great things on the show but but yeah we're not afraid to get kind of dark and and show people kind of those sorts of scenarios but it is fun because i just don't think you've seen black women doing the things that we're doing on this show before i haven't so i'm excited that people get to see that and uh yeah we'll see what they think you know in, in the sense of you know something 
terrible, something good coming from something bad, meaning a Black Lady sketch show came from the cancellation right. of the rundown. What are you hoping to, to do with this show? Like, what you, in, in success? To last like, more seasons. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're, you've got a, a bazillion guest stars that, are, that many of whom people know and some of whom people don't. Yep. Lots of new writers, lots of new directors. I mean, this maybe can do for, for a new generation what In Living Color did for another. I love to hear you say that. I receive that. I hope that is absolutely the case. I really think that's true. And I think that In Living Color was so pivotal for so many of us. Um, remain so to this day. I mean, if the cast of In Living Color got back together today, people would watch. In a and, heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Sign me up. Mm -hmm. I, I will not do the dancing, though. I'm just no, gonna go you're not going to be a flag girl? I can't, I'm not going right. to well, be a And yet girl. Fox made a new and Living Color five years ago, and six episodes of it are sitting on a shelf somewhere. Yeah. I was on the set. I interviewed everyone, yep. including Lil Rel and yep. a bunch of other people. Those I interviews remember. are just on a tape recorder and somewhere. And the younger Wans were on it. I give know. me those episodes. <laughs> Fox, if you're listening, give me those episodes. Well, you want the real tea. So I was on In the Flow with Afion Crockett as a writer-performer, and we got canceled after six episodes so they could do the new and Living Color that never saw the light of day. Ooh. They had reporters. We watched them do sketches. They weren't bad. They had they had the fly girls. They were doing their thing. I don't and then... know what happened. I, I don't know what happened. I truly don't. But I think that there's got to be a lot of pressure because Keenan ran it. But there's got to be a lot of pressure to try to follow up with the new generation. I love what they're doing with like all that and shows like that, though. I think that's fun. Those are fun reboots. So I don't know. I think they could try it again. But either way, we're here now and uh, creating that kind of legacy would be a dream. And that's that's my hope, really, is that we create an institution that cycles through comedians like In Living Color did, like SNL continues to do. That would be great. And who are some of the people who guest star that we should really be keeping an eye on? Angela Bassett, Patti LaBelle, Loretta Devine, David Allen Greer, Larry Wilmore, my guy's in there, Jermaine Fowler. But in terms of up-and-comers. Oh, Jermaine yeah. Fowler. He's in the new Coming to America, too. Lala Milan is a YouTube comedian who's super funny. Amara La Negra is like a reality star who's turned actress who's amazing um Laverne Cox everybody knows about but I do think she is going to have some really dynamic comedy turns in her own stuff now that Orange is the New Black is over and Punky Johnson is a comedian who I love she's fantastic in it she's one of the new faces at Just for Laughs coming up this festival this year who else um, what about in the writer's room Oh, my God. All of our writers are amazing. So uh, Keela Green came from Chelsea's old late night show. Uh, Ray Sani came from The Good Place and Rel's TV show. Brittany Nichols was on Transparent, wrote on Take My Wife. Holly Walker is from The Nightly Show. Love her so much. And Second City, she was my teacher at Second City in 1932. Amber Ruffin on Late Night with Seth Meyers wrote Long Distance for us. And Ashley Nicole Black, one of our uh, core cast members as well, is also a writer on the show. So it's a dynamic writer's room. And they are are all so funny and so great and so different you know you can tell all the sketches that end in a murder Akila Green probably wrote <laughs> <laughs> all the sketches that are some weird concept taken to the nth degree Brittany Nichols wrote anything that has like hard pop culture references Ray Sani wrote anything that has familial relationships Holly Walker wrote and anything that's like a rom-com or an action spy with a little bit of rom-com is Ashley Nicole Black. Like they write, it's very funny. They each write very specific 
kind of genre types and uh not we didn't intend it that way but that's that's kind of what we get on the show and that's the nice thing about having even though it's all black women it's very diverse because there's lgbtq there's gender non-conforming there's straight women there's bi women there's all sorts of things that um there's women with college degrees the, uh ray sani was a stripper who turned into a princeton dropout like it's just like their their stories are unbelievable <laughs> i like that it was a really inspirational story yeah, yeah, for a couple seconds sad. yeah she was a stripper sad. she yeah. went to princeton she no, dropped out dropped out right <laughs> And then she wrote on my show, back up again, yay! And The Good Place. Let's not skip over Emmy nominated The Good Place, yes, (laughs) Yes. of course. I just want to quickly follow up on something that came up in the TCA panel today. I want to know a little bit more about your training in puppeteering because the opening credits are fantastic. Thank you. Uh, but I had not known that that was training that you possessed. It's true. Well, I didn't operate the puppets because I was directing that. Yet another hat that I wore on the show. Just for the open, Dime Davis directed our whole series and she is fantastic. But yeah, I got to, I, okay, I'm going to tell you something that I did not tell the panel that only you know, which is that I used to travel the country touring with a Christian puppet group called the King's Kids. <laughs> This is so embarrassing. Wow. And that's how I learned to be a puppeteer. And so I did that for three years between the ages of like 13 to 16 or something. But you never forget that skill. And throughout the years on the nightly show, we had a couple little puppet things. But Wyatt Cenac and I used to do a show at the Comedy Central stage in L.A. where I had a puppet and he he did he and I both did a bunch of sketches with puppets. We were kind of both obsessed with them. And then he did more stuff on The Daily Show and now subsequently on his other show. Yeah. So I have a long history with puppets and I just thought it would be so fun to see our cast represented also you don't see a lot of black puppets it's true puppets are racist Um, (laughs) (laughs) how are puppets racist i don't know but i was just saying like it was just so cool to see those puppets with like ashley's puppet with like 4c hair that was just crazy to me and the the company that made them did such a good job and so yeah it was really fun puppets are really hard to shoot you see a lot of hands and arms in the frame it's letterbox you'll notice so that we could frame out a lot of the puppeteers hands but um yeah it was good did he, did you notice that see i feel like you would notice that that was literally the first thing dan said to me after we watched the show not the letterboxing was, was, part but how great the credit the, sequence the was the opening I, credits Aww. yeah tremendous thank you can you win an award just for an opening sequence yeah you can Sweet. There, there are emmys for that oh good there is an emmy for that good Ga- yeah Ga- apply I think for that. game of thrones won in its first season i think right yeah is that true I thought you were kidding. Wow. Tanya. Sorry, I'm yelling at people who aren't supposed to be heard on the podcast. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. I, if I would. Oh, my God. I'd be so happy to win an Emmy for a credit sequence. That would be so fun. And and maybe maybe for the show. I oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, too. That would be great. I just thought that was a given, guys. <laughs> Listen, just tell HBO we need a season two. We need to do it again. It's fun. Well, there you go. Well, a Black Lady Sketch Show premieres Friday, August 2nd at 11 p.m. on HBO. Robin, we can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you. Love you guys. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Robin. Number five. Dan, we're out of the summer doldrums. Lots to choose from this week. What do you got? We really did have a couple weeks in a row where I kept telling people to catch up on other good things or, you know, to go see their kids or, you know, play outside in the sun. And no, this week, tell your family you're done with them or they can watch TV with you and, you know. Beat the heat, yeah. Beat the heat, turn on the air conditioning, close the blinds. There's a lot of good TV. I think that Pennyworth is uh, an interesting show i think that probably it helps to not view it in any way as being a batman prequel because 
I happen not to at all care about the origin story of Alfred Pennyworth. Instead, it's really just a 1950s set kind of British spy crime drama and it's a lot of fun if you take it on that level it's it's got big outsized characters it's got very high production values i've only watched one episode of it but um our friend and colleague tim goodman watched multiple and gave it a very enthusiastic review so so there's that let's see what else is coming out this week sherman's showcase on ifc is a very very funny sketch show we just had a wonderful interview with robin Thede, who's a black lady's Sketch show is also premiering uh, soon, and it's really just a, a very good moment for both sketch comedy and diverse sketch comedy. So that's cool. Probably though, the the key and most important show that we should talk about that's both returning and ending this week is Orange Is the New Black on Netflix, which at some point we're going to be able to take steps back from it and understand both how very good as an overall unit that show was, even, dare I say, how great it was, but also how important it was, and I mean genuinely important, both as the key text, sorry, House of Cards, you were largely garbage, on Netflix, and just as a representational piece of television, it is so important. And when that show has been and was good, it was so good, and this last season is not really on the same level as seasons one, two, and three, I don't think, but it's really good, and it is really consistent in a way that the past couple seasons weren't, and, uh, I, you know, a lot of people on Twitter have, have asked me, can I just skip the two previous seasons or skip a season and a half, and my answer is always no. <laughs> because the show is a cumulative show and it's about the relationships between these characters and how they develop over the years. That's really and truly my answer, but I think you can probably figure it out and maybe if you need to skip a few episodes and then go back, that might be fine because you might be confused by things, but I think that a lot of people who have felt like the past couple seasons have been erratic are going to come back around to this last season and go, okay, there's the show I love, there are the characters I love, and yeah, this was an important show. This is also a show that you like very much. I like it very much. I, I concur that some seasons were definitely not as strong as some of the other ones. In terms of final seasons, look, I mean, I am not a critic, so make of this what, what you will, but... I thought, you know, as someone who covered Big Bang Theory, I thought that fina series finale was extremely satisfying. We've spoken at length about Game of Thrones and how all over the map the final season was and, and the series finale. But look, you know, as I look at some of the shows that have ended this year, and we're talking about a lot of major shows, I thought that the the series finale and the final season as a whole of Orange is the New Black is probably the, the best show I've seen this year of 2019. And it's, it's very strong. Um, I think the performances are just... Above and beyond, I mean, Danielle Brooks is, I think, the MVP this year and quite possibly the silent MVP of the entire series. But look, you know, outside of what happens on the show, Orange is a New Black is a game changing show. When you go back and look at the TV landscape, you know, from from a distance, this is the show that that helped define streaming. This is the show that cemented Genji Cohan, who had weeds under her belt as a powerhouse producer and she has used Orange is the New Black to build a team of impressive producers, many of whom she is working with on other projects. She's got another show in the works at Netflix with a pretty racy title I won't repeat here. Obviously, she's also got Glow. She's working with similar people 
on a Lifetime show that she is exec producing over there. And, you know, the cast, I mean, they've all broken out. Samira Wiley won an Emmy for The Handmaid's Tale after leaving Orange is the New Black. And, you know, this is a show that we are going to look back on as being a really, really seminal show. I think that's without any question. As I said in my review, I think that you could... And this is a show that at one point was a big Emmy player and then really started confusing everybody because it started off as a comedy by Emmy standards, then became a drama under Emmy circumstances. And, you know, I'm not going to debate whether or not that's right or wrong, but... Where is it right now? Is it's it, a drama. Yeah. I mean, this final season is definitely a drama. It's very heavy. It does have incredible moments of levity in it, but it's heavy and it takes on some serious subject matter as as Genji Cohen is prone to do. Um but yeah, I mean, Dan, it's just good. Binge the whole thing. You know, we've got our Orange is in Black reporter, Jackie Strauss, has some incredible stuff in the works. I will only tease that here, but look for that at THR.com next week. But I mean, this show really sticks the landing. It, it does. And and as I was saying on the Emmy front, you could fill a supporting actress in a drama Emmy category twice over for this season with people who are great. Uzo Aduba is the actress who has won an Emmy for the show and deserved to because She's remarkable and will, again, very clearly deserve a nomination, but she should be joined in any field by Danielle Brooks, by Natasha Lyonne, by Taryn Manning, who who has just gotten better and better and better as the show has gone along, by Adrian C. Moore. It would be so easy to give six Orange is the New Black Supporting Actress Emmy nominations next year. It would be a breeze. And you wouldn't even need to break a sweat. You could then throw in a few other probably supporting actor nominations. And then you could give Taylor Schilling a nomination because I, I think at some point people are going to be able to step back and realize that Piper, even if she annoyed you a little bit, a lot bit, she was supposed to. Yeah, it was what she was. By design, and, yeah. and she was both the point of entry character who you needed to get into this world and ultimately was a character of importance herself. And her journey was essential to the show. And I don't think the show in its final season over lingers on her story, but I don't think it sells it short that her story is a central story within this world, while also acknowledging that that Tasty's story was equally important, that Suzanne's story was equally important. These stories were all important, great stories. And even if things were bumpy in the middle, this was a great show. And yeah it should be checked out. Again. And its legacy will continue to remain great as this week Netflix announced that Orange is the New Black is launching a criminal justice reform fund. It's called the Pusey Washington Fund, which is, of course, named after Samira Wiley's character, who was killed off a couple seasons ago. Yes. Um, pretty, pretty cool legacy thing to add on there to what's already an important show in our landscape. Absolutely. Well, that feels like a good point to wrap things up. We'll be back next week with more highlights and special guests from TCA. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. You can subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really, really like us, write a review. Tell your friends. Word of mouth is what helps us gain an audience. You can always tweet at us. We like to hear from you. We like to respond. And you can email us any questions you might have. We might not be getting to a mailbag segment anytime in the immediate future because TCA gives us an awful lot to do. But lots we will, of news. We will oh my God, definitely return to that soon. You can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. Was that correct? I hope so. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 